Well, so did you have a great Christmas? Man. Oh, that was not very enthusiastic. <laughs> I had a great Christmas, and let me tell you why. Because I have all adults in my house. Now, all, my, my youngest little girl is 18, and my older ones living in my home are, are older than that, and so we didn't have to get up at the crack of dawn. You know what I'm saying? You know, no little piddly feet came walking into our bed, you know, screaming and hollering and making us want to get out of bed, you know, when we were in no mood and, and not ready at all to get out of bed. So we were able to come in, you know, have some breakfast, have a cup of coffee. Listen, we were even able to talk about the meaning of Christmas without anybody wetting their pants. I mean, it was this awesome awesome time and and I loved this Christmas and I hope that you did as well but here's what it means it means that Christmas is over it's the 27th of December and January 1st of 2016 is right around the corner so are you ready are you ready for that so I hope that you have got all of your resolutions thought out all the changes that you want to make in your life you've planned it all out you've plotted it all out because listen one thing that we always do is make resolutions. I mean, we'd always want to say that we make resolutions because if we don't make resolutions, that really doesn't say very good things about us. So let's just all assume that we are going to make some good decisions and plan to make some good decisions this next year. But here's the problem. We have a love-hate relationship with resolutions, don't we? You can say yes. Yes, we do. We hate them, but we never stop doing them. We hate them because we are rarely successful at them. Now, I don't know if you do, but, but I am a follower of Michael Hyatt's blog. And in it, he gave us a few percentages that, that I've kind of maybe heard before, maybe you have, but I was kind of startled at him. Listen to what he says about New Year's resolutions. He says that 25% of people abandon their New Year's resolutions after one week. Way to go, America. Awesome. And that 60%... More than half will do so within the first six months. That the average person makes the same New Year's resolution 10 separate times without success. Woo! Right? And that you, I know you've heard this one. 95% of those of us who try to lose weight on a diet will regain it. And a significant percentage of us will gain back more than we originally lost. I'm so proud of ourselves. I'm so so good. But you know what I say to all of that? Well, of course we do. Of course we do. It's what a resolution is. It's us trying to resolve a problem that keeps coming up over and over. Now listen, I've had the privilege of bringing this particular message between Christmas and New Year's over the last few years. I think it's because Brian and Paul love you guys so much that they want to make sure that you get the very best you know what I'm saying? As Nacho Libre would say, you get the best. Or maybe it's just because they want to, don't want to prepare a message on Christmas Day. <laughs> maybe it's that. I don't know. But here's what we've kind of talked about. We've talked about the fact that when we talk about the changes that we want to make, the resolutions that we want to make, this is what we've looked at the last f- several years. That we, when we think about the priorities that we would like to make in our lives, that we should really consider first, what does God want for us in our lives? I mean, as Christians, what does God have for us? What is his desire for our lives? What is his priority for our lives? And we've looked at the scripture and found that God is not silent on that at all. In fact, he told the Israelites in the Old Testament very clearly. Jesus quoted the Old Testament 
when the Pharisees questioned him, when he said, what is, Jesus, the greatest commandment? And Jesus just told him straight out. It's to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your strength, with all of your soul. Love him. To love him. That is his greatest priority. That should be our greatest problem that we solve in our lives. How do we love him more? But here is the problem with that. We as Christians struggle with that just as much as we do with any of the other resolutions that we make in our life. I mean, personally, I wouldn't want all of my percentages of success and failure up on the screen. I mean, would you? The truth is, living how I want to live is a challenge. The Bible talks about those challenges, and it calls them trials. So I want to invite you to turn to James chapter 1. Turn in your Bible or, or maybe your device to James chapter 1, because I'm hoping that maybe you can see this for yourself. Maybe a little bit later you can come back to it. It'll help you when you need it. We're going to have it on the screen for you um, if you don't have either of those things. But the Bible tells us that he's going to test us. He's going to test us. He's going to try us. So why does he do that? Well, that can be a complicated question. But luckily for us, fortunate for us, James breaks it down really, really clearly. Listen to what he said. James chapter 1, we'll begin with verse 2. It says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So here's how James starts out. He says, count it joy. Man, I love the Bible. I love it. Let me tell you why I love it. I love how gritty it is. I love that it doesn't pull any punches or sugarcoat what it's trying to teach us. The Holy Spirit has inspired James to tell us that there are going to be occasions in our lives, that there are going to be circumstances that we're going to find ourselves in that are going to be difficult. They're going to be hard. And he doesn't call them a party for a very good reason. He calls them trials because they're going to be tough. Some of them, he says, are going to be very tough. And when you're in the middle of them, you're not going to feel joyful. That's the gritty part. James says during these times, you're going to have to count it joy because it isn't going to feel like joy. What James is telling us is that these, challenge, these challenges that we're going to experience have a very, very important purpose for us. And that purpose is this, to simply grow our faith. God wants us to trust him. He wants us to be strong, consistent, steadfast. God wants us to come to a point that even in the worst of our days, we can learn to trust him. He wants us in the hardest of days, the most difficult of situations, that we are never more safe than when we follow his lead, obey his voice, and to trust that his way of walking through life is ultimately not only for his glory, but listen, his way is for our good. And man, do I love verse 5. Look at verse 5. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Aren't you glad that when we're in the middle of these difficult situations, that on any given day, when we're at a total loss and we have no idea how to move forward, 
without really losing our minds, God says, do you need wisdom? Are you struggling? Just ask me for help. And I think that God is passionate. I think he's just as excited about this truth as we are. If his whole purpose is to take us through this deal so that we might learn to think like he thinks, to act like he would act, then for us to come and say to him, God, I don't get it. I'm lost. I'm confused. I have no idea what to do in this situation right now. I think it would be his joy to tell us what the right thing to do is. And so he says, come to me and I'll give you wisdom if you ask. One of the things that I love in the experience of being a parent is when any of my kids are in the middle of something that's just working them over. It's stealing all of their joy, their joy, and they've come to the end of themselves and they just sit down with Christy and I and they say, Mom and Dad, what do you think that I should do? I love that. I don't love that they're going through something difficult. I love that they have finally come to the end of themselves. And in that moment, they are so humble and they're really ready to learn. I love it. As a parent, I love it. And I know God does too. But listen, James has a very serious caution for us. And here's what he says. Don't doubt him. Don't doubt him. He has said unequivocally, that if you don't understand this situation that you're in, he'll help you. He'll guide you. But you need to trust him. You need to trust him. And he's not mincing words about it, James isn't. Listen to what he says in verse 6. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's double-minded, unstable in all of his ways. Man, that's some strong words, some strong language, but it's for a good reason. Listen, when God has told us that he is willing to help us, that he will guide us through the situation that he has created to help us learn what he wants us to learn, and we doubt him, We are the ones who have put a stop to the progress that he has been working on in our lives. We have brought it to an end. And so for him to consider us double-minded, unstable, unable to move forward with the commitment for growth that God is doing in our lives, listen, for him to say that we're not going to receive anything from him, listen, that's not harsh. That's just the way that it is. We have stopped the progress that God is putting and doing in our lives. And he gives us a couple of examples, and these are so fresh. Listen to him. Verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. And so the one who feels like their trial is to be without. Your trial is to be without. Maybe to be without a relationship that you're hungry for. Maybe it's to be without financial means. Maybe it's to be without talent. But in any case, you feel lowly. God, I have never been able to get ahead. It seems like others have it so easy compared to me. I don't have anything compared to them. Listen to his counsel. Listen to this. Yes, you do, my son. Yes, you do. You're not a pauper. 
The king bends over to hear your prayers, daughter. You have direct access to the very throne of God. Every blessing that belongs to my son Jesus also belongs to you, according to Ephesians chapter 1. Your inheritance is more than you could ever imagine. You're not lowly. You're exalted. You are royalty. So don't forget that, child. Don't forget it. What about the one whose trial seems to be to have much? Listen to what he says to that person. And let the rich one boast in his humiliation. Because like the flower of the grass, he'll pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade in the midst of his pursuits. To the one who seems to have it all. Here is James' warning by the Holy Spirit. Be careful, my child. Be careful. Because your tendency is going to be to trust in all of your stuff to give you contentment and happiness. But while you're consumed with building your life around all of the stuff in life, the life that I bring you, in that moment, your meaning will be lost in all that I want to do you, and you won't even realize it. So be humble. It's not about what you have to offer. It's about what I have to offer. So stay humble. Stay humble. And then summing up, about why we have all of these challenges in our lives in the first place. He says in verse 12, blessed. You know what blessed means? It means happy and content. So he says blessed, happy, content is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive life, which God has promised to those who love him. Because that's the goal, you guys. That's the goal, life abundant, contented, satisfied, hopeful, confident, and ready. But James tells us this, there is evil lurking in the midst. Listen, if you're thinking that all of this sounds great, man, I would love to to have that life. I'd love to feel as though my life is abundant and contented and satisfied. Hopeful, confident, and ready. But listen, it'd be nice to be that guy, but that just doesn't sound very much like me. Well, here's what I want to say to you. Welcome to the faith. Welcome to the faith. I remember James Griffin saying this last year when he spoke here. He said, if you're a person who wants to love God, to follow Jesus, to live in obedience, but at the same time, you just want to do some jacked up stuff, what that just means is that you're a Christian. That's what that means. So so listen. Thank you. I'll tell James you did that. So why we are trying to resolve issues in our lives over, over and over, why are we trying to do that? Because James tells us in the very next verse, he says it's temptation. Temptation is saying yes when we want to say no, when God is telling us to say no, when we know to say no, but everything within our heart wants to say yes. And James has a word for us. Listen to this. That is not God. That's not God. Look at what he says in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Listen, I just have found this so interesting as I've studied through this. This has been in my heart for a number of months now, and this is really what kind of led me to want to share this with you. 
The word James uses for tempted is the very same word, listen to this, that he uses for the word trials and for testing in verse 2 and verse 12. It's the same word. It's the Greek word, which is the language that the Bible was originally written in. It's the Greek word pirasmos. Without getting too complicated, let me just tell you what it means. You see, we view trials and temptations as exclusive from one another. And what Jason or what James is saying is that they're not. They're not. Both trials and temptations come from the same word, but they're translated differently for this reason. Because the word pirasmos has different nuances. In trials, there's an, ex- there's an external enticement. God is wooing us to listen and to learn from him. But here in verse 13, it's referring to an inner enticement to struggle towards sin. So what James is teaching us is that God tests us, but he does not tempt us. But it's in those very same circumstances that we're also tempted to sin. They're not different situations. They're the same situation with the potential of different responses. And so what James is saying is, listen, it doesn't matter what situation that we we find ourselves in, what situation or season that God is leading us through. There is an opportunity to listen to God and move toward the life that he has for us as his children or to be drawn into temptation and to doubt that God's way really is the best way for us. In other words, every trial is meant to grow our faith, but every trial is also a a potential temptation. So I imagine that there are some thinkers in the room this morning And you might push back and say to me, but if God has put us in the situation that will become a temptation, doesn't that sort of make temptation his fault? It's a fair question, right? It's a fair question. My son, Micah, is going to KSU and he's still living with us. And so lots of times I'll go downstairs and this kid is, I mean, he is faithful. He studies really, really hard. A B is extremely rare for him. He is a great student. And he loves, uh, we love to talk about the test that he has coming up because, you know, I just like being interested in, in his life and he loves to, to let me know how much smarter he's getting than I am. And so, uh, so I go down and we'll talk at, at times and he'll tell me about tests that are coming up. But if I go down on a Monday and he's got a test on a Thursday, if I go down and I say, hey, Micah, you know what? There's a movie that's coming out. I know you love this series and I'm going to go see it, you know, and I know you're studying, but, you know, if you... You know, if you want to go along with me, you can go. And he goes, gosh, I need to study, but I love that movie. That's one of my favorite movies. I'm so excited. You're buying, right? And so he decides, he packs up all his stuff, puts it away, and goes with me to, to the movie. And then on Tuesday night, Tuesday night I go to him and I say, you know what? Mom's not here. We're on our own and we're not cooking, right? And it's 60 cent taco night up at the Mexican restaurant. We love tacos. So you want to go grab a taco? And he says, I love tacos. I love tacos. She packs up his stuff and puts it away. And something else happens on Wednesday. And then Thursday, he comes to his test. And he just bombs it. He just bombs it. So listen, it's not the test that made him fail. It was the lack of preparation and discipline in his heart that made him fail. The test was the opportunity to succeed or to fail to measure whether he had learned or not. So if he did fail, it wasn't the test's fault that he failed. It was just the occasion, not the cause. 
So what James is saying is don't get confused. Don't confuse the occasion with the cause. So what causes us to be tempted? Well, that's his next point. He says, but each of us is tempted when we're lured and enticed by our own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So do you know what James is saying? He's saying that temptation starts in our heart. He's saying we are lured and enticed by our own desire. The NIV says our own evil desire. You know, the Greek word for desire or evil desire there in the, in the James uses is the word epithumia. It's made up of two Greek words. Epi, it's where we get epicenter, and it means focused on. The other word is thymos, which means desire. So what James is saying is that temptation comes when our heart is so focused on something, something that we desire so badly that we feel that we just have to have it in that moment. It's literally a fatal attraction. So what is the point that James is making? He's just giving us this principle. Relationships are not bad, but an inappropriate relationship is. Sex isn't bad. It isn't wrong. But sex used in the wrong way is money isn't bad. But the love, the deep desire and belief that money is going to provide something that is missing, that's where it all goes wrong. It becomes a fatal attraction, and it lures us into sin. And if it's not handled right, the attraction leads to a conception. Do you see the metaphor? And it leads to a birth. And now what began in our heart on the inside has now come to the outside. And that's where it becomes so devastating because it begins to grow and to grow until it leads to death. Maybe it will ultimately be the death of a relationship, a death of your integrity, or the death of your voice in the lives of your children. That's why James is teaching us. Listen to what he's teaching us. That trying to solve our spiritual weakness isn't about trying to stop doing bad things. Solving our spiritual weakness is ultimately about addressing what is in our heart and why we want things so badly. Does that make sense? It's not about trying to stop doing bad things. It's about looking into our heart and addressing what's in our heart and why we want things so badly because that's where it starts. That's why trying to solve our spiritual weakness is so important that we look at our heart, that we look at our heart. Thomas Chalmers, he was an old Scottish preacher in the 1840s, and he wrote, listen to the, listen to the title of this sermon, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Probably won't hear that one here at Westridge. But here's his main point. The only way to break the hold of a beautiful object on the soul is to show it an object even more beautiful. Isn't that good? The only way to break the hold of a beautiful object on the soul is to show it an object that's even more beautiful. And that is what God is seeking to do with each and every trial that we're facing to give us the chance to see him more clearly, to love him, to understand that his will and his way is perfect for us, and it will lead us to life. And the life that's, by the way, doesn't end here. It's just the beginning. Well, there's a passage in Scripture that lays out 
in real time, in real life, a story of someone who is working through exactly what James is talking about. This person dealt with temptation a lot. In fact, the Bible says that he experienced every temptation that we ever have, and he handled it perfectly. And what I love about as we watch Jesus walk through the temptation that he has at the hand of Satan, you see how beautifully it parallels what James is teaching us about trials and temptations. So turn in your Bibles, if you will, and we're going to take a look at this story quickly. Matthew chapter 4, and we're going to begin right at verse 1. And then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus went into the wilderness. His first assignment from God after the Holy Spirit came down on him like a dove and said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. His first assignment was for God to go out into the wilderness. The wilderness was between Jerusalem and the Dead Sea. It was dry. The rocks were jagged and, and sharp. The wilderness was no vacation spot. And I don't know if you caught it or not, but it wasn't Jesus' idea. God led him there by his Spirit. And it was extremely intentional on a number of levels. This was in no way a coincidence, but in every way an occasion for God to reveal something to Jesus, that this was on purpose for him. The next three years were going to be no picnic for him. He would face more than any other human being would ever face when it comes for occasions to fail. This training, humanly speaking, was essential. And so he was led out into the wilderness, not only into this dreadful place to be tempted the entire time, that's what Luke tells us, but to do it with no food, no bread, maybe some water, but no bread. And after 40 days, the scripture said that he's hungry. All of this is the trial. All of this is the circumstance. And in the middle of this trial, in the middle of this circumstance, the temptation comes. And trust and distrust is on the menu for Satan. God has just said to him, you are my son. I am well pleased in you. And so Jesus knew that he was God's son. Satan certainly knew that he was God's son. But it didn't stop him from trying. And he says this, if you are the son of God, you should eat. You should eat. Can I give you a little insight into what's happening here? First, there's nothing wrong with bread. Bread's not evil. Bread is not wrong. Nothing wrong with a dinner roll. And the Bible even says that the fast is over. It's been 40 days. It's over. But Jesus knows that this isn't about bread. This is about him satisfying himself. The temptation is to satisfy a craving, a desire, a potential epithumia for something that in and of itself might be good. But it's not what God is providing. Not here. Not now. The occasion is for God to show Jesus that he is faithful. That he will provide for him in the excruciating days ahead. And the temptation for Jesus is to doubt that. 
and to take things into his own hands and to undermine the whole reason that he had come to the earth. How many times did Jesus say to us and in his word that his desire was to do the will of the Father? It's not my will. It's God's will. I'm here to do the will of the Father, not my will. Even all the way till he was hanging on the cross, right before his very death, he said, Father, not my will, your will be done. Your will be done. And so do you see it? The occasion, the trial was this. Let's go to the wilderness. I want to show you how far my faithfulness goes. And the temptation is, why don't you just take care of yourself? You really want it. Jesus, ultimately, you're actually going to need it. So go ahead and do it. And watch what Jesus' response is. And oh man, I love this. Listen to what his response is. He says, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I mean, how awesome is that? Jesus tells evil, life doesn't come from bread. Bread is necessary, but it's not ultimate. It's good, but it's not ultimate. Life comes by listening to the counsel of God. That's where life comes from. Isn't that good? It's so rich, but it gets better. Matthew 4, verse 5, the second temptation. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it's written. He will command his angels concerning you and on their hands he, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, again, it's written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Listen, Satan takes Jesus to the high point of the city, the temple of all places. And he says to him, listen, if you are the son of God, I mean, remember that because Satan is persistent if he's anything. If you are the son of God, then throw yourself down. God said he would catch you. Satan wants Jesus to throw himself off the temple and to see if God would do what he said he would do. But here is what Jesus knows. Asking God to prove himself doesn't come from a heart of faith. It comes from doubt. Doubt is unbelief looking for a reason to believe as though one doesn't clearly exist. Remember what James told his readers? There are going to be trials that you will face and God is going to work, walk you through them and their purpose is to teach you to trust him, to grow your faith, to trust him with all of your heart. Are you unsure? Are you confused? Do you feel lost? Ask for wisdom. And he'll give it to you liberally. But don't doubt. Don't doubt. Don't act like you believe when you don't. What can God give you when you don't believe in him? What can he give you when you don't trust him? He won't give you anything because you won't receive anything. So listen to how Jesus responds, and it's classic. To Satan, once again, it's written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. God has spoken on this. It's written. He's not the one who needs testing. Amen? So finally, in his desperation, Satan reveals his true intentions. In verse 8, he says this, 
Again, the devil took him up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I'll give you if you'll fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to them, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. What Satan was ultimately after was to try to get Jesus to exchange what he had come to do and to replace it with a much quicker, easier, more glamorous plan. But it would mean that that plan would end in death. Our death. Jesus' mission would be gone and our salvation would be lost. And that's always the direction that temptation moves in. It's what James was saying. Temptation is a fatal attraction. It starts as an embryo of the heart, but when it's conceived, it immediately begins leading to death. And what was Jesus' response? To go it alone? Worship the Lord your God. Give your heart to God. Let Him own it. Look to Him. Be willing to see Him for what He is. What is the only way to break the hold of a beautiful object on the soul? Show it an object even more beautiful. And that's why God leads us through challenges that are so difficult that we have a tendency to fail and to fail again and to fail again. But God is faithful again and again and again until our faith gets strong because He wants us to see an object even more beautiful than what we are seeing in the moment. This last year, we had, um, we had to put down a little dog that's been part of our world for the last 13 years. His name was Nikki. And Nikki was just little old nasty-looking dog. I mean, he was a stray. I, I mean, he was an ugly dog. Honest to goodness, I'm not kidding you. He was an ugly dog. And he had this white hair that was really short like this, and it just shed all over the place. So we had just this rule for Nikki that you're not allowed to be up on the couch. Because if you do, it's going to get on mom's cashmere, and that's not going to be good, and you're going to get in trouble. So we couldn't let him be up on the couch. And so when I would come into the room, and Nikki was up on the couch, and he loved to kind of be on the ottoman that was in front of the couch. That's where he loved to be. And when we would come in, and we would just say, Nikki? And you could tell by the tone of our voice that there was some correction coming. Nikki? Here's what he would do. I mean, you would just... Look, Nikki. Nikki. And he just wouldn't look. I mean, for nothing. He would not look at us when we were bringing him that correction. He wouldn't look at us. I remember reading a story a few months ago about a dog trainer who, was, who had a client who had a brand new puppy. Was, his puppy was rambunctious and had a lot of spirit and, um, about him. And, and so the the owner took the, uh, the dog um, to the trainer and week after week they would do this training. The trainer would have the dog kind of be about 15, 10 or 15 feet away from the owner. He'd have the owner kind of stand back like this and he would just have him stand there and then over there about 10 feet he'd put a plate of bacon. And he said, I want you to tell the dog to come. And when he comes, we're going to see what happens. And when he first went there from day one, I mean, it was an immediate. As soon as he said, come, the dog went right to the bacon. And so day after day, they would practice this. They would have this little exercise, this 
test, if you will. And day after day, come right over to the bacon. But after a few weeks, maybe a couple of months, they began to notice something different. That the dog began to move toward the master. And then in a moment, he would smell that temptation and he would get almost up to his master and right over to the bacon. But eventually, after there was a relationship built, stronger and stronger between the dog and his master, he began to come straight over to his master. And they noticed something that was very interesting. The dog would never look at the bacon. He would never keep his eyes, take his eyes off of the master and never look at the bacon. So the question is, here is my question. What is our focus? When we go into this next year, God is saying, listen, you're going to face trials of all kinds, and I'm doing it to teach you to focus on me because I have a life that is abundant for you. I have a life that is great for that's good for you, that may not be easy, but it's good for you, and it's going to last forever. But are you going to listen to me? Are you going to look to me? Or are you going to be drawn away to temptation? Are you going to be drawn away from me? What is the only way to break the hold of a beautiful object on the soul? To show it an object even more beautiful. So what are we going to do in 2016? The better question might be, who are we going to trust? When we face these challenges, who are we going to trust? Because who we trust will determine what we do, right? Who we trust will determine what we do. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ at all. You're hearing what I have to say and you're going, I don't even know Jesus. I've never trusted him to bring salvation into my life. And I want to just tell you, today could be the day that you do that. You just ask him to say, God, I know that I'm a sinner. Jesus, I believe that you are the Savior. And I'd like to ask you to save me from my sin. And God said in his word, He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And then guess what? The trials of that faith begin because he wants to show you all the good things that he has for you. Didn't mean to, I wasn't planning on saying this, but you know a verse that I've loved for so many years, Philippians 2.13. It is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. I said it to you again. It is God who works in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. That means that God is not only faithful to tell you what to do, God is faithful to even help you want to do it. That you will come to him as the master rather than go into the bacon. You know what I mean? So whether this is the first time that you have ever trusted God or you are on the journey of learning to trust God more and more, let's ask the Lord, God, Will you help me? Will you give me wisdom this next year so that I can do what you want me to do and be who you want me to be and I can learn to live in a way that would give honor and glory to you and it would be for my good and those around me? 
moving into this new year.